For me, coming from South Central, getting into cycling and being introduced to like all of these people from different backgrounds and professional industries, it opened my mind up to what was possible. For me, getting more kids of color into the sport where they can just have that understanding and opening of perspective and like having their minds kind of like, you know, you are more than what the statistics say you are. You know, I grew up in a place where we didn't have the best education system. We didn't have a, like a lot of inspiration to be more than what you saw people being successful in the hood doing, which was like drug dealing or whatever, or hustling or whatever. So to get into this sport where there's doctors, there's lawyers, there's people that do things like that you never even thought were jobs, like filmmaking and set design and all this other stuff. And to be able to have access to just those conversations is incredible. It like completely changed like what I wanted out of life. Even just that, putting that in front of some kids, man, that could like be the difference between, you know, them ending up in jail or them ending up with a marketing career and working at a brand like Specialized. And like, I think that's extremely important outside. Everybody's not gonna be a bike racer. Everyone's not gonna get it. But that doesn't mean that the industry of cycling isn't rich in opportunity. That's Justin Williams. And this is episode 563 of the Ritual Podcast. Rich Roll Podcast. Greetings, bipedal, bicycle-pedaling humanoids. It is I, Rich Roll. Welcome to the podcast. Before we get into it, a little housekeeping. First off, I wanted to announce that we recently created a brand new YouTube channel that's dedicated solely to short clips from the podcast. So every single day, we are now posting brief four to 10-minute excerpts from both current and past guests. So if you're into that kind of thing, it's a pretty great way to get a visual taste for each guest and check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes, or you can simply search Rich Roll Podcast Clips on YouTube. Second, the holiday season is now officially upon us. And along with that comes this search that we all go on for unique and awesome gifts. So in addition to suggesting my new book, Voicing Change, might I also suggest because it's so important now more than ever that we all keep our nutrition in check, including our loved ones, our Plant Power Meal Planner. Here's the thing. You're stuck at home. They're stuck at home. You want to help them eat right. You want to help them learn how to cook healthy. So why not use this weird time to actually help them learn how to cook, to up their recipe game? I'm offering an opportunity to do just that by virtue of gift cards and gifts that will really help positively impact them. The Meal Planner is our digital platform that will hold their hand through the preparation of customized, super nutritious plant-based recipes from our library of thousands, and also have all the groceries for those recipes automatically delivered directly to their door. Right now through December 25th, we're running a special holiday discount Gift cards for annual memberships are now just $79, $20 off our normal annual fee. It's a great stocking stuffer. It's perfect for last-minute shoppers as it's instantly available. No promo code necessary. So to learn more and grab your gift card today, click Meal Planner on the homepage menu at richroll.com or go directly to meals.richroll.com. Okay. Today's guest has been called 
the most important bike racer you don't know. <laughs> Dubbed the eighth most influential person in the sport. He's a guy who walked away from the world tour early in his career to carve his own path and has matured into not only an 11-time national champion, but more importantly, the founder and manager of Legion of Los Angeles, which is this very cool cycling team here in LA that serves as a critical voice for inclusion and representation in a sport that I think is fair to say is in dire need of reinvention and reimagination. His name is Justin Williams. He's super cool. His story is incredibly powerful. It's instructive and it's all coming up in a couple secs, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share 
the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, for a little context to today's episode, let's have a little dose of reality. Out of 743 riders on the world tour, which is the highest tier of professional road cycling, only five riders are black. And out of the 176 cyclists in the recent Tour de France, only one was black. One guy, Kevin Reza. That, to be frank, is bullshit. And it's an institutional paradigm in the cycling industry that Justin Williams is hell-bent on breaking. With 11 U.S. national championships and 14 California state road and track championships to his name, cycling is truly in Justin's blood. At a young age, he showed a rare aptitude as a sprinter, crushing crits throughout the state as a teenager, and eventually becoming the junior track national champion and a member of the national team. In 2009, he joined Trek Livestrong U23, their dev team, racing with world-famous pros like Ben King, and Alex Dowsett. But despite his success and his unbound potential, the obvious next stop was the world tour. But instead, Justin became, 
disillusioned with the elitist aspect of the sport. He quit the team, he went home, he enrolled in college. For Justin, cycling, it seemed, was over. But it was his younger brother, Corey, also making cycling waves in local races at the time, who ultimately lured Justin back into the sport through fixie racing culture. Justin found himself newly energized and also discovering this renewed meaning and purpose on the bike as an athlete who still had races to win, of course, but also as an advocate on a mission to redefine the sport. Thus was born Legion of Los Angeles, an independent elite cycling team that Justin founded dedicated to increasing diversity and encouraging inclusion in the industry. It's a badass team of super talented racers of varying ethnicities and backgrounds who don't necessarily fit the status quo of the current whitewashed cycling program. So this is Justin's story from his experience growing up in Los Angeles to immigrant parents through his blossoming love affair with the bike. It's also a dissection of the cycling industry as a whole and a dialogue about the ways Legion is breaking barriers and setting a new standard when it comes to supporting athletes and promoting inclusivity. Justin is a guy who is wise beyond his years. He is passion in motion and one of my cycling heroes. Also, really the embodiment of persistence. And this, I think, powerful reminder that what is most important about sport isn't wins. It's not podiums or medals. Instead, it's really about this journey towards self-actualization and the impact that you leave on others. And it's also about enjoying the shared experience. It was an honor to sit down with this accomplished athlete and inspiring activist. Oh, and not to bury the lead, but Knox Robinson also popped in to quietly hang in the wings. So that was very cool. Anyway, enough said. This is an important and enlightening exchange, and I hope you dig it as much as I did. And it is with that that I give you Justin Williams. All right, man. Justin, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, man. We had a little bit of a false start the other day. Yeah, no, everything's on Zoom right now. I know. So I just assumed, man. I was like, oh, yeah, Zoom meeting. My bad. Cool. My <laughs> bad. But I appreciate you making time over the weekend, man. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah, no worries. I, I love coming to Thousand Oaks, so this is like... I used to live out here, so it was like a nice little blast from the past, kind yeah. of driving through and like being like, yeah, Chipotle's yeah. right there. I could stop you do by. you do a fair <laughs> amount of riding out this way. I love it as much as I can. Um, usually there's Nasco and Phil's, which is like mm. kind of this really cool build into the off season. I mm. usually suffer through both of those because they're pretty close together and I usually have no Phil's training like done. cookie fondo yeah, thing? Yeah, right it's on. cookie yeah. fondo. So uh-huh. I usually suffer through those and those kind of are the wake up call to being like, yo, you should, you should probably start training. <laughs> right. How, uh, how's training been lately? Like, what's it like doing what you do in this COVID era? Yeah, it's been odd with the fires and everything. Like we, you know, it was this kind of stay ready so you don't have to get ready situation in the beginning of the year to the middle of the year and then summer started and we're like, ah, it doesn't look like anything's gonna happen. So we took a little bit of a break, me and my younger brother, um, and then it, it, was, it just feels like it's things upon things happening where it's just, you don't know what kind of training you should be doing. Right. Um, and then when the fire started off, we had just like actually started getting into like those slow base miles. 
And then, yeah, and then that kind of kicked us it. out. We were going to go to, like, Utah. It didn't, didn't happen. Um, and then the fires kind of simmered down. So now I'm just, like, suffering through uh, these 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 days of training that's uh-huh. like should have started maybe a month ago, right? Or two weeks ago. There's no races though. Or, I mean, Tour de France has happened. The Giro is going on right now. But are there local like crits and things like that going on right now? Or no? No, man. No. I feel like the organizers or the uh, SCNCA kind of dropped the ball as far as putting something together. Like to kind of there's been this hunger for wanting to do something. Uh, and we have a lot of group rides where people are starting to to kind of collect uh, at, but there's been no there's been no racing, no mm. plan of racing, no discussion about racing, like nothing. Yeah, it's, at least in California, makes it hard to stay. Train. Yeah, out. exactly. <laughs> Motivated for what? <laughs> right. And what about the rest of the Legion crew? Like, are you able to like, keep that together and keep them? engage with everything or yeah no it's it's we have a lot of fun we have like a group chat and kind of the you know these like a little small things that we have where you know we just try to keep the guys engaged or at mm-hmm. least like communicating with each other we're we you know we built a team with the idea of having this family um and guys that we really believed in from our past um and we started the team was small it started from nothing so right. a lot of people had to buy into the idea because we didn't really have a ton of support um and that's the vibe that we have as a team so it's, it's pretty easy to like just have conversations about stuff that's happening in cycling mm-hmm. ideas that people have um we are able to kind of grant them a voice right and when usually when you're on a team you, you do your job and you ride your bike and that's kind of the, the gist of it um but because you know we have this kind of open platform where you know, the guys are more than welcome to like, give suggestions and, and voice their opinions and uh-huh. everything. Like there's always something happening where guys are like, yo, we should do this. Or we should think about this. And that's made it, that and Zwift have made uh-huh. it <laughs> yeah. bearable, right? Yeah, yeah. We're always, we're always getting into something. Yeah. Well, Legion of Los Angeles is super cool. Like it's very inspirational what you've created, what you've built and kind of what you're lording over right now. And the idea at least it seems to me, is kind of twofold. Like one is um, taking a stand for athlete representation in a broken system. Mm-hmm. We were talking a little bit about that before the podcast. And the second is, you know, being a voice for inclusion and diversity in a sport that is in desperate need of, you know, yeah. a pretty strong <laughs> yeah. injection of that yeah. um, right now. So, I mean, are those the kind of two, you know, primary things that you think about? Yeah, I mean, the- there, I think those are two the most important things, or my driving forces, right? Like being an athlete, being in that system of kind of how teams are set up and structured uh, that are obviously weren't working, um, and having friends that have quit the sport because of that, understanding mm-hmm. the culture that I come from and how people will view that, and then trying to put it in front of people that come from where I come from in a way that they can digest it and kind of pull inspiration from it and be actually interested in it. You know, what the old version was and and what we're trying to do with the team now, it, it just really clashed, right? Yeah. There just wasn't, I knew that we had to do things in our own way, in our own voice, in our kind of our, from our own perspective to, to really um, help diversify it, right? Like representation important is important in us standing on top of the podium and, and, being in these races and showing is a one thing, but also bringing that culture and showing that culture and showing people that it's not like this, this thing that you have to conform to be a part of. Right. That's also 
really important, right? You, right? When people come into something that they don't see themselves into and they don't, and they feel like they have to be something else to be a part of it, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of the time no one wants to to stick around. Yeah. Um, and that's a lot of what we, we, we've seen. Yeah. There's, there's, I mean, when you talk about culture, there's, there's like s- traditional cycling culture and yeah. then there's like culture culture. Right. And you're, yeah. I feel like you're, you're like reimagining where those two worlds meet and, and part of like Legion extends beyond just being this cycling team and this kind of, um, you know, a way of of mentoring young riders from diverse backgrounds to get into the sport, but really kind of like this aspirational brand. Like I think I read somewhere you were yeah. like, "This I want to be like the, you know what Supreme is to to skateboarding." Yeah, you know, I want to be that for cycling. Like 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 having a really strong sensibility, like fashion sensibility, culture sensibility, and when you see like you know, the kit, it's just fucking dope. I mean, it's like, it's, it's the best kit, you know, yeah. it definitely, and I know you're into like everything from the typeface and the color schemes and all of that. Um, and and what you've done is like really cool. Like when you see it, it stands out and it, and it means something. And I think that makes people excited about cycling in a new and different way, but it also has a life kind of almost outside of cycling, just in right. culture at large, so. And that was the, that was the whole, kind of idea behind it being Legion of Los Angeles and not like some racing team that goes fast, you know what I mean? Some title like that. Um, It was super important for me. I grew up in South Central LA where there's like, and I loved graffiti growing up. I used to, you know, draw graffiti and I've always been into typography, always been into fashion. So again, it's just being true to kind of my vision and understanding of, you know, what I thought could bring more people in. I think the first step in, in, making someone feel invited to something is like making it aesthetically pleasing to them. Right. Uh, so that's really like where, where I stood when we were coming up with, with the name, the title and everything, and, and uh-huh. kind of just the persona and, and look of, of, of the team. I, I think it's gone pretty well. We've been able to, I don't know how, but we've been able to definitely kind of maneuver ourselves yeah. where sponsors kind of I mean, I can see like a whole us. lot, like hoodies, like all the whole thing, 100%. man, you know, not just cycling. Kit. Can you can you even buy like the the red, white, and blue kit that you wear? No, you, you can't, can't, right? You, can't you gotta get earn the, that. Yeah, thing, exactly. Right? Yeah. You can't even get a kit with uh like that looks like the team kit. It's like mm. one of those things where I wanted to keep that like special, right? So you can't get a Legion kit or bibs right now. You can only get like the supporter kit is what we right. call it. Because like there needs to be, like to buy an NBA jersey, you can't buy an NBA jersey that the players step out on the floor with, uh-huh. right? And cycling, to me, my personal opinion is that like every person has access to everything and it creates this mentality where like people think that because they're riding the same bike as you, they deserve the same respect as you, but mm-hmm. you're putting in you know 30 hours a week on the bike mm-hmm. and another like 10 hours a week in the gym and then you're like, eating oatmeal for breakfast and all, you know, doing all these things to be this professional athlete. And then you have, there's this attitude, this elitist attitude within the sport where everyone kind of feels like, well, I have the same bike as you. I have the same, I can buy the same stuff that you, you worked your whole life for. And then it's, yeah, it just (laughs) creates, to me, I feel like it just creates this kind of understanding that like you're, the work that you put in your whole life, I've been riding since I was 
13, mm-hmm. right? The work that you put in your whole life, I could just pay for. Yeah. And like, there needs to be some kind of a separation from what the pros can get versus like what your everyday consumer could get. Yeah. I think that's a, a lazy old marketing tactic that a lot of brands use where they're like, oh, the pros ride it. You can also ride it. But I think that's in cycling that's created this world where people kind of just walk around with like a kind of a big head because they can do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you see people out riding who are in the kits of all the teams, you know, (laughs) I think you can spot from 200 yards away whether somebody's legit. And that's crazy because I think it's great that you want to represent a team, like the same way I represent the Lakers. I was, you Mm -hmm. know, we lost last night. I was in my jersey, super mad. I think that's great, but I have a swingman jersey, right? I can't, I can't step onto the Staples Stadium and and go shoot a, shoot a basket. So it's just like, there's, there needs to be some kind of, it's really good that people want to wear team jerseys and stuff and and represent their, their team that they believe in, because that's what Legion is to us, right? It's this, it's this opportunity to create um, a platform that is similar to a, a franchise that we've seen in professional uh, sports, right? The Lakers, the Cowboys, the et cetera. This is my town. This is my city. This is my team kind of thing. Uh-huh. But at the same time, we have to make sure that there's that separation that these guys that are spending their whole lives trying to get to this level feel special doing right, that. Right. Um, we got Knox Robinson over here who <laughs> he's got a similar thing with black roses, right? Like I, we joked earlier, like I was going to ask him for a black roses singlet and he's like, no, man, you know, you on the crew, you know, you can't just get it. Right. Call, yeah. Know? Yeah. I know. <laughs> dude, you're like, <laughs> Tan- total tangent, but like, can we talk about the EF like palace duck kit? Oh man. What is going on? It's so important, man. <laughs> what is, what is up with that? You know, it's like, one of those things where people love or hate it, which I think mm-hmm. is perfect. Like people, when you make something that is that kind of left field, people should love or hate it. It should be uh-huh. very powerful emotionally on one side or the other. I don't care what people think about the, the kit. I like the kit, but I don't care what people think about the kit. It's about what it means for professional cycling to kind of have that collaboration with a brand that's so mainstream and has like such a powerful kind of vibe to it. And for them to interject that yeah. on, on the top level, I think that's like extremely important yeah. for the sport moving forward. I mean, I'm an old man, so when I see it, like my eyes hurt. But I, <laughs> but I respect like it's a British skateboard streetwear brand, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea that like a cycling team would collaborate with that kind of um, with that kind of company, I think is cool. And it's Rafa, yeah. right? Like it's, yeah, it's the Rafa. same, yeah, same same brand that, that we're sponsored work by. With. Yeah, it's um, like I said, it's it's super important to like these next steps of kind of like creating change in cycling, breaking tradition in cycling. It is it is a very important move. It's a power move mm. from Rafa and Education First because they did it on at the Giro. I think they should have did it at the Tour, but like, right. you know, whatever. Um, but it's it's crazy to see that happen because I, I, I can't recall anything. And, and I think that it's it's not being hailed as, as big of a deal as it actually is because We've never seen anything like that happen in cycling. Any, right. Ever. I mean, for better or worse, cycling is so much, it's so rooted in tradition, some of which, you know, is super archaic. Yeah. Um, and there's something to be said for some of those traditions, but upending those to modernize it and, right. and like broaden the aperture of the sport to make it appealing for another, you know, younger generation. Yeah, I think at some point, every cycling is running into a ton of issues as far as like the age group that is consuming it now yeah right like at some point 
you have to move. You have to be willing to to change and evolve to continue the growth of something. Uh, and it just feels like sometimes they aren't paying attention at all to you know growth and getting a new demographic into it. Is there any sport more fucked up than cycling? Uh, not that I know, not that I personally <laughs> yeah, know of. You know, I, I mean, was, they just it just seems like they cannot get out of their own way. I don't think they want to. Uh, cycling is very much a sport where the people at the top are fine with making what they're making, and they have all the control. So it's like, mm. well, we're gonna do it our way because we can. We don't like it, we talked about this earlier. Like, it's not about everyone winning. It's about us getting what we want. And then keeping it that way so that we have full control over uh-huh. it. You know, I think there in cycling there's this massive fear of losing control. But you know, at some point you have to let things go. With with me and with Legion, like I understand Legion is like a small brand right now. It's gonna get to a point where I want it to outgrow me. I want it to be like this thing that's that's so big that I have to like reach out for help or I have to like distribute parts of it or we have to break it into different things like that's really a cool thing right because then that means the reach of it is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger yeah i think that's super important i think that's lacking in cycling right now well i want to get into the disruption of the sport but i think you know for people that are watching or listening who aren't like super rooted in, in you know in what cycling is and isn't it would be helpful to kind of paint the picture of what professional cycling is all about, like from the insider's perspective, like what is it like when you're on one of these teams, like financially, professionally, when you when you talk about like the control mechanism, like the, the day in the life and, mm-hmm. you know, there's a romance around it, but the reality is, you know, very, di- very, very different. I yeah, think that man, most people a realize. A lot of shady things happening, um, a lot of shady things domestically on the US scene, um, the guys just aren't getting paid. You know what I mean? Like, due to again, it takes an immense amount of effort to become a professional cyclist. Mm-hmm. Um, and these, there's a lot of team managers that are taking their cut of whatever that that partnership money is, and you know, building these programs and teams where the guys ride, they keep their mouth shut, they don't ask for anything. Um, they're lucky to be there, and there's still this mentality, even though it's. Our team runs a, operates as a marketing firm that uses cycling as a platform mm-hmm. to market the partners that we are sponsored by or that we work with. That's really the gist of like every cycling team, right? But managers keep control over their athletes by this, just suppressing them, making sure that they feel lucky to be there, even though like when you're getting paid like 12 grand a year mm-hmm, right. as an independent contractor, which is how the the contracts are set up. You're an independent contractor. You work for yourself. We're giving you, we're, you're agreeing to do this job for us for 12 grand. Man, it's who insane. can live off of yeah, 12 grand? Phil, well, Phil if wrote you're that getting book that. like <laughs> pro cycling on $10 a day, right. know, which is like the reality of it for most people, unless you're a superstar. Yeah. Even the superstars, like there's a few guys that get paid like real money but yeah like again domestically like that's what you're dealing with if if you're even getting paid and the sad part about that whole thing is that it doesn't have to be like that like especially right now cycling is a massive industry it makes money but these directors are so used to just asking companies for just enough so that they can pay themselves and run the program 
so that they can secure that sponsorship, mm-hmm. right? So it's like if people are asking for less and less and less and less to run their program and the only people that are suffering from that is the athletes, right? At what point are there going to be either the level is going to come down, the sport is not going to grow or it's just going to deteriorate to the point where like what is it? going to look like to be a pro cyclist or to be a professional at bike riding. It's going to be guys that can afford to do it. Right. And we continuously talk about this, how elitist cycling is or how how hard it is to get into it because, you know, bikes cost X amount of dollars. But the reality of it is, is like what the top of the sport looks like just isn't really appealing to anybody mm-hmm. because these teams are continuously just asking for enough to so they can get by and they can run the program on a nickel and dime budget. Yeah. When they could actually go, which we've proven, you can actually go to these sponsors and say, this is what we're doing, this is why we're valuable. Here are the numbers and analytics to back it up. Here are the people that we highlight, our superstars, our Corey's, our Justins. Um, this is how we work, how we make everything work. Um, you know, this is what we're asking for. And they go, okay, cool. But that's yeah. worth it. We can, we can we can justify spending that. Instead, they, these managers are going. This is how much we need. We need some. We need some product, and uh, and that that'll that'll be fine. And then once they take their cut out, what's left is like what they try to <laughs> the product swap. <laughs> yeah. no. What's and left you should is be what grateful. They, and you should be grateful. Yeah, right. You get to live the dream. It's, it's amazing that the there's dream? never been like. Cycling has never been able to get it together to create like an athlete's union, essentially, to collectively lobby for- Everyone's terrified. People don't talk about, no one talks about anything. No one talks about, you know, if you look at most other sports, you can see what everyone's making. You know what LeBron's net worth is. You know, you could see what his salary is from the from the Lakers. Cycling, dudes don't even want to talk about Mm -hmm. it. Right. And it's such a mental kind of fuck where, you know, guys that aren't getting paid anything aren't even expecting it. And they think now that other guys that are asking to get paid are wrong for asking to get paid because now they're comparing each other. You know, they're yeah. comparing themselves to that person and going, well, I'm better than you and I don't, I don't get paid. So and, why should you get right. paid? And it's like. Bro, like it's <laughs> we're all in a bad situation. Yeah. We should talk. Uh, we should stick together and start to like demand, you know, that we do because mm-hmm. do teams actively suppress uh, riders being becoming valuable to sponsors. Well, there's a dysfunction I think that is a, that's sort of informed by that like umbrella of omerta that defines cycling. Like we don't right. talk about these things and we're right. all in this together. And there's this kind of collective silence around these important issues that keeps the sport from moving forward. I think that stems from a lot of like the European culture and like, you know, great kudos to European cycling. Like I think what they have is what they have. They grow up in and it's great, but I think it, it just doesn't work for American. Mm. And the more that we continue to kind of try to emulate that model, the more we're doing a disservice to to kids that are trying to get into the sport and make a living out of mm-hmm. doing it. Um, th- it j- that does not work here. It's not going to work here. Call it entitlement or whatever you want to call it. You know, again, I, I've ha- I have tens of 20, uh, 10, 20, 30 friends that have quit the sport because there is no 
there is nothing there for them. They yeah. ha- at some point you grow up to an age where you have to take care of your family, you have to pay your bills. Um, and we just don't have the structures that they have in Europe. In Europe, they have so many team men. There's, I remember one year I sent 150 resumes out because that's how, and most of those teams were in Europe, mm-hmm. right? Europe, Asia, and that's what we, 150 teams right here. There's, I think there's maybe 10 continental teams, yeah, maybe. So it's like we just don't have the structure that they have in Europe. So if we continue to try to like emulate that model in a way that we are, it's just there is no future. Yeah. Well, we're in a whole new world now. This is the this is the age of the influencer you know, <laughs> marketing yeah. you know, kind of thing that you know these these technological tools have allowed people like yourself to you know basically rewrite some of the rule books here yeah. cycling is tricky because fundamentally it's a team sport like it's not mm. you know cross country running or marathon running where it's really an individual thing so it makes it a lot of it a little bit harder i would imagine but the fact that you were able to kind of create this out of whole cloth and change you know the rule book yeah. is amazing and i would suspect that you know People are paying attention, and you're going to see, you know, people doing something. You know, they're they're going to be copying that model more and more. Yeah, it's something that I've definitely thought about. Like, how are we setting the standard for like what's next in the sport, mm-hmm. and how uh, sponsors uh, and brands um, kind of interact with individuals and teams? Uh, cycling is definitely a team sport. We, I think that there's, if you give people the proper tools and, and knowledge to do what we've done. Hey, everyone in our team, we go over social media, um, we go over social media tactics with them. We, we show them exactly how we've gotten a following um, and, and what it does. It, it's, it's actually pretty simple. Mm-hmm. It's just mostly about consistency and kind of understanding the algorithms and how they change on like social media platforms. But we, we teach our guys that because the, if, if we have 10 guys on a team and six of them have influence in different spaces, that makes the team more valuable. Right. Now, getting people to understand what their role is on the team, like that's where you, that's just a conversation that you have to have. If you think you have, you know, cycling is infamous for not wanting to build superstars, but then that puts the team in a space where no one knows who's who's who. Mm. No one knows what's mm-hmm. happening. Right, and then that creates this jealous space where guys can't do their goddamn job because they're so busy looking at like, well, why does this guy get that, or why does this guy? No one asks why LeBron is LeBron. <laughs> like he's proven why uh-huh. he's LeBron over and over and over again, and that doesn't mean the rest of the team is invaluable. That means just know your role and play your role so that we can all be successful. Mm-hmm. And so, like, we really tried to create this structure where, like, I raced 2018 on my own. I right. won. I think 17 or 18 races. I mean, had anybody ever done, I mean, you were winning national championships without a team. It's like exactly. unprecedented. It was like insane. So in taking that and kind of like using that as understanding for a lot of the guys that came to the team, I'm like, hey guys, I'm doing this because I care about you and I want to build the sport, not because I need a team. And that's not to say that in a way that's like, you guys are lucky to be here. That's saying like, hey man, like I've done this on my own. I'm here trying to help you guys do the same and 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 for us to do it as a family together. Uh-huh. Like let's make sure we keep that in mind as we're growing and as we're moving. And you know, the guy the team that we put together, we really structured it in a way where like 
we have guys that can do everything. We have guys that understand their role within the team. And that's how we, that's why we won so much without, we don't have the best guys in the country. Uh-huh. We have solid guys. Most of our guys are local. Most of our guys are from LA. So putting together a, a local team that's able to win on a national level, you know, it's something that comes from creating this structure where everyone knows their role and everyone is understanding of the team's goal. And within that, is there like what's the difference in the like financial incentivization structure for the athlete? Like, is it? I, I assume it's different than it would be like on a world, you know, world tour team. Yeah, I mean, and we're figuring that out. Everything is very new uh-huh. for to like we're we're creating this new structure, but it, I mean, we the have no two years, idea. Like two years old, right? A year like, and a half. Yeah. It's not okay. either. You know what I mean? So we're expect, uh-huh. everyone keeps asking us like, oh yeah, like how do we do this and what's next? And yeah. I'm like, bruh, I'm figuring it out as I go. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's different. On the world tour, there is a there's a minimum, and the way that minimum works, it just depends. Like the the big secret of being pro tour is that, or or pro conti or whatever, is that some of the riders are hired as staff, so they don't make as much, mm-hmm. or they have like these double contracts where um, the the UCI minimum will be like sixty thousand or whatever the number is, and then they'll basically say, oh yeah, here's your UCI contract, but then you got to pay for your bikes. You're paying for your own travel. You're basically doing all of this stuff uh-huh. that's taking away from that what that minimum right. is, right? So, for what we're doing now, we're obviously like it's we we talk to all our guys and we're like, yo, it's an investment. We'll pay you X amount of dollars, but as we grow and as you help us grow, you will, you will also grow, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's the buy-in because we don't have like again, we barely had support in our first year. Right. I literally had to go to my sponsors and they're like. What you did last year by yourself, just do that again. And yeah. I was like, no, no, no. Like, I want to start a team and I really want to, like, spread this wealth and kind of show everyone that you can do cycling in a way that's really cool, really fun, and really fulfilling. Um, give me the support to do that and then I'll show you what it's worth. And, like, that's why going into this year or going into this year and going into next year, you know, we've done really well uh, mm-hmm. during the – during, during COVID. I know that there are a lot of teams that are like struggling, Yeah, you know, but we've done really well because, you know, having that focus on marketing and kind of showing off the lifestyle and just giving people something to aspire to, or just like something to pull inspiration from, mm-hmm. that's worked very well for us, but that's always been the model that we've tried to—it's a—it's a, it's a better financial investment. I mean, when you look at—I mean, the, the the operating budget for like a world a world tour team is like twenty million dollars. Yeah, it's like, it's like crazy. You got to get the RV and like yeah. the whole thing. Like, it's a major. You're you're running a huge business in right. order to do that. But ultimately, to your point of a cycling team being, you know, a marketing vehicle for brands. How are you going to get the most bang for your buck on an ROI level? It's like the storytelling and the inspiration that comes from what it is that you do is much more powerful right. and will translate in a more meaningful way to the end consumer who's looking to buy a bike or whatever product it is yeah. that you're that you're you know sponsored by versus somebody standing on a podium in some race in Belgium, you know, getting kissed on the cheek and by a girl. And like, does that, is that even meaningful anymore? I mean, I, the winning is powerful. Winning is, you know, a lot of the reason that we are where we are. Winning is power. How you use it and how you, um, and how you uh, 
positioning yourself to market that and, and use that influence to kind of create this following is what's important. In mm-hmm. Europe, they're still doing, you know, when I was in Europe, they wanted you to do like 75 race days or something, right? which is, which they, is You're a like lot. living in Belgium, <laughs> it's freezing, it's raining out. Yeah, it just which, sounds miserable. Which is a lot. Um, so you need the winning, but on the same uh, token, like we've, you know, building content around specific event, what we've noticed is that you don't need that many events. You mm-hmm. need, you need maybe 10 events on the year with like a very, a really good content creation plan. And usually we're at these races for like four or five days. So like throughout those days, the training rides, the um, community interaction that we do, all of that stuff, capturing all of that can create content for months. Right. right. So if you have 10 events on the year and you're, you're creating these full content kind of uh, layouts with these plans and, and understanding what you're trying to capture and understanding what your your vision is and, and who you're trying to, um, the audience that you're trying to capture, like you can do that in right. 10, 10 right. races, right? How do you balance, you know, running this team being the manager and all the, you know, administrative things that go into that with like the training and the racing. <laughs> um, I've gotten lucky, honestly. Um, my fitness definitely isn't what it was when, when I was just riding. In 2018, I literally just trained with my little mm-hmm. brother all the time, didn't complain, um, put in the hours. And then, and I was really just being his training partner. I was like, I, I'm pretty much done. I just want to have a year where I kind of enjoy uh, the things that I love about the sport and like going to different cities and really going to like these nice restaurants and hanging out with friends that I've had, uh, doing all that. And then once I got into running the team, it, it was a lot more work than I thought it was uh-huh. going to be initially. Cause like on my own, I was like, oh, I can do this for six other guys. And it just, it became a whirlwind. So this year or for 2021, I actually hired a couple of people to come on and, mm. and help me with that because yeah, it's it's almost impossible. It's right. you know doing twenty to twenty five hours of training, and then also getting done with that and having to jump on like Zoom calls right. or being meetings, uh, having to do design work, all of this stuff, even little things like build like the team's uh, information sheet on like Google Docs, like all of that stuff takes so much time that. It it was catching up to me where I was like, oh, uh-huh. I'm not gonna be very, I'm not gonna yeah, be very yeah. good if I have to do like these these nine things. But when I when I first started, I knew it was gonna be a lot of work, uh, and I knew it was just gonna be a sacrifice. So I was like, man, like yeah. I've had three extremely good years of racing. Um, I can take a year or two off, or like to be, I could take a year or two and be slightly less good. Mm-hmm. Um, with the team, though, with the full team that's built around me, which also makes it easier, hopefully that balances out things a little bit um, and really focus on building something that that's going to be important to me and impactful for people. Right. I've heard you talk about how, you know, the fitness part in the whole scheme of like performance is just one piece of this puzzle. And really, at least with respect to crit racing, like the superpower that you have is being able to kind of read everything and (laughs) be, it's like a chess match and you have to be, you know, 10 steps ahead of everybody else and kind of know where to position yourself and where to be so that you're in the right place at the right time. Yeah. 
Um, and that's kind of like a life skill too, right? Like if you can apply that to how you're building the team or how you're living your life, like that's what, seems to that's be a what lot COVID of, has given me. It's yeah. given me this understanding and this um, this space to transition kind of that race tactics uh, that I use in races now uh-huh. applying that to business and kind of the way I like operate in my, my life and just positioning yourself with patience, understanding uh, and the information that you have to get the best result. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been really kind of interesting to see my, or to feel really my brain kind of shift because I don't have racing to kind of really using that knowledge and information of tactics and right. applying that to like other things in my life. Right. It's, it's been kind of, right. kind of fun. Right. So you're like, that guy's doing that. But if I'm here and then yeah. you know, six months from now, then I'm going to be over here. I think the biggest misconception about racing that everyone has is that, you know, it's not like other sports where like, if you're the strongest, you win. Or it's not like a lot of other things where if you're the strongest, you win. Cycling, it seems like everyone gets into the, the sport and they go, if I can build the fitness, I can be the best. Uh-huh. And it's like the furthest thing from the truth because you're never going to be, we're all human. You're never going to be so much better than someone, especially in criteriums where they're like six corners, four corners, eight corners, where you got to know how to handle your bike. You got to know how to ride in the Peloton so that you're not wasting energy. You got to know kind of how the Peloton is reacting to things so that you can know when to be in a position so that you can capitalize. There's all of these things happening. And also you're looking at different individuals and riders and going like, okay, like I know this guy can go from a mile out. So at a mile, I got to make sure that I'm close Uh to him or I can see what he's doing. I know this guy wants to go early or I know this guy wants to go late. So I need, you're figuring out all of this stuff while understanding the course knowing and and having uh, to be good at the corners, bouncing off of people at 30 miles an hour. And like all of this stuff is happening. It's my favorite thing in the world because it is this moving chess game where like if you can master the game, the fitness matters a little bit less. Yeah. I was watching a video uh, of you and your brother doing kind of like a race recap while watching, like you had a GoPro and yeah. you had this crit. And it was, it was so hectic. Like my oh, hands were sweating. It's crazy. Just watching this, like it really is a contact sport. And you're so close <laughs> to these guys bouncing off of them and like going into these corners and pushing just like crazy Watts. And for most of the race, like you're pretty kind of far back. And yeah. then you just figure out like how to get right to where you need to be. That's all depending on what the vibe is. Like that, that all depends on like the first... I break races down into like sections. So like the first 10 minutes, I'll kind of just feel what's Mm -hmm. happening and how people are reacting. The next 20 minutes, you're looking at if the Peloton is like awake and if they're attentive or if they're lazy, because if they're lazy, you have to stay forward uh, because you're going to have to follow more. If they're attentive, you can kind of sit back and chill and be like, oh, the race is fast. Like nothing's going anywhere. Uh At the end of the day, most races, most criteriums average 28, 29 miles an hour. So if we're riding, if I'm looking down on my computer and I'm seeing 28, 29 miles an hour, I know that someone would have to be crazy strong. Plus you would have to have the right group of like six guys up the Uh road for it even to have a chance. So like, yeah, you can be kind of chill in that moment. And then like the the, toward the end, you just have to start watching the good guys Uh because you're like, okay, like we're 40 minutes in, we're 45 minutes in. Now I know there's 10 guys maybe that can actually do something in this moment, right? And then once that window passes of like, 
you know, oh, they had a 10-minute window to do something or a 15-minute window to do something. No one's done anything. By that time, my team's already kind of gathering at the front, and yeah. now they're going to control what the field does. So it's like it's pretty much the same cycle. And while we're capable of racing races in different ways, like, you know, I, I'll look at the race from the beginning and feel it, out, feel it out at these different points and kind of know how to react to that. But having teammates who all know their role and working together as a unit seems so crucial to that success, right? Yeah. How are you going to get your lead out? And then I'm looking at you in 2018, like winning, you know, winning these races without <laughs> any teammates. Yeah. How does that work? So like racing without teammates, you have to be more attentive, but you have to race to your strengths. Like I'm pretty fast. I'm a, I can sprint. I'm a sprinter. Um, so what I can do better than anyone else is do 1800 watts for, yeah. you know, three seconds. Which and for then... people that don't know is bananas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can do a massive effort really quickly. Um, and that's how I'll race because if I close a gap super fast because I sprinted across uh, and you're not a sprinter and you're behind me, even if you're on my wheel, the amount, the effort that it's going to take for you to stay with me Cooked. is going to cook you. Yeah. And if I, I can do that effort 20 times, 30 times, mm -hmm. most people, their max wattage is like 1200 watts. So if I'm riding across something at 1800 watts, which is significantly more, even if you're on my wheel, you're going to 110% to try to close the gap where maybe yeah. it was only 80% for me. And then you can dial it back and recover. And, and then I can dial again. it back, yeah. get there, recover. And not only that, I've pulled you out of your comfort zone now. Mm -hmm. So like now you've done an effort that doesn't suit you and you have to try to recover from it. It just like takes much more out right. of people. So on the opposite side of that, it would be like me riding all day at like threshold. I'm not, right. I'm not a threshold guy. Yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah. a guy that's going to ride this medium effort all day. It's going to kill me. And then I'm not going to be able to sprint at the end. But at the same time, cycling is the only sport where sprinters are in races that go on for hours. <laughs> yeah, there, is, know, no, like there is no weight class. There yeah, is no category. It's it's a super weird space. Yeah. Like, yeah, because I'm 180 pounds, you know, like I'm racing against guys that are 140 pounds. Right. 130 pounds and they go like once the road goes up it's like a very big <laughs> disadvantage <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to have to carry that uh -huh. weight up and over climbs uh and it's always something that i thought was kind of weird but you know cycling is great because there's a different uh, there's different events and different things for mm -hmm. everyone different kind of races for yeah, everyone yeah. but yeah like you have to survive those races right. as that bigger guy so um now, that's why you have, you know, a team where because like on a day like that, it's just someone else's day and we do our best and I'll do my best to put that person into position because I know what my role is when we show up to a road mm -hmm. race. If I get selected for the team, I'm like, oh, my role is to like protect the GC guy and kind of use my knowledge of racing to just position them right. I could mm -hmm. I could be in position 10 times out of 10. And if I can do that and have my GC guy or my climber on my wheel before I get blown off the back, right. um, just then that's a job up. well done. I can mm -hmm. be proud of that. And I can go, you know, I can hold my head high if that guy gets a result because like I did my job in putting him in the right position to, mm -hmm. to do well on that day. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just that in different situation for different people. Right. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. 
The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Well, let's take it back, man, because your like backstory is kind of amazing. Like growing up here and how you got into cycling yeah. and the role that your dad played and all of that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, man. I was my parents are Belizean, so in Belize, soccer and cycling are the biggest sports. And my dad has always ridden. I like I literally remember he had this <laughs> Eddie Merckx frame. And Corey was a baby and his bike was next to the crib. And Corey took like this little toy hammer uh-huh. and chipped his bike. <laughs> no. Dude, it was not good for Corey. Um, but it's always been in the family. He grew um, up cycling in Belize. Yeah, he grew up cycling in Belize. He was, he, actually, raced, right? he was actually a runner before he, he got he into cycling. Uh-huh. And because the glamour of cycling in Belize, he like stopped running. I didn't cycling. realize that cycling was a big deal in Belize. It's massive, man. We go down every year to do this race called the uh, Cross Country. It's Holy Saturday mm-hmm. Cross Country race. It's on, um, I think it takes place on Holy Saturday, they call it. Um, yeah, but it's it's massive, man. We go. That's the one where you won and your dad finally figured out that you were good at this. And <laughs> yeah, you like won exactly. a piece of land or something? I won a piece of line, yeah. uh, land. It, it's uh-huh. so cool. But the race is 144 miles. Um, the whole country is out on the side of the road. There's this massive point of pride where if a Belizean wins, the whole like country celebrates. And if a Belizean doesn't win, everybody's like super pissed off for like the rest of the weekend, dude. It, it's actually, it's crazy how different the vibe is from when someone that is Belizean wins versus uh-huh. how they don't win. But how often does a Belizean win? Not very often. Yeah. <laughs> It sounds like Comrades Marathon in South Africa. Yeah. You know, there's this double marathon race every year. Have you, have you done Comrades? You've done it twice. Yeah, like the whole place goes insane for it, right? It's, yeah. like, a, it's like the Super Bowl. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So it's like, it's like that. It's 144 miles, but seriously, man, there's probably like 70 or 80 prizes out on the road. So like every like mile, there's like a gift basket, a cake, a bull. There's <laughs> yeah, a bull yeah. up for grabs. Like there's money, airline tickets, vacations. There's like every like town basically, and, and most of the companies that are in the country gives a prize. So like, dude, people are sprinting all right, day to try to get these, yeah. <laughs> to get these uh-huh. prizes. And then by the time you're coming back, there's like 30 dudes left. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because everyone, everyone like got their prize out. and they're yeah. like, yeah, I'm good. I got my like uh-huh. $2,000 prize. I'm going to go home now. I'm good. So and that's a lot of money, man. It's, it's yeah. two grand is a lot of money. That's how much some of the bigger races pay here. 
So right. it's it's this massive event. So so your dad your dad did that race. My dad did that race for years, man. Mm-hmm. And I think the best place he got was like I think like fourth or uh-huh. something. That's pretty good though. I, I think it's yeah. pretty good, but you know he's. I mean, for the amount of times that he he did it, I was like, dude, you couldn't win once. Come uh-huh. on, man. So um, when did when did they move to LA and why did they move? Uh, I, I don't know why they moved. Uh, they moved over in their twenties. Um, and they moved over separately, um, and then got together when they when they were here. Um, but yeah, it was it was it's massive on my mom's side of the family, which I didn't know until I got older. Like there's like you know her cousins have won that race maybe like one year. It was like ten years that they did it, and I think they won it eight out of the ten years. Mm. But I had no idea. Like no one explains this to you when you're a little kid. Yeah, and you're like, oh yeah, I like bikes. That's pretty dope. It's like something where. Families build legacies around stuff like that, right? Like, and that could be like a military family or a, a family that goes to the NFL or et cetera. And I had no idea. Huh. So then I started riding one day because my dad, it was wintertime. Uh, my dad left his um his bike on the trainer. And I kind of always been interested. I've been like fascinated because my dad always had pretty bikes and stuff. Um, and I really got hooked. One year he raced for this team that had GTs. And it was like the it was like probably the first aero bike ever. It was like this badass looking yeah. GT. It was like this green metallic green and like purple paint job. And I like fell in love with it. I was like, I want that bike, mm-hmm. you know? So he left his bike on the train and I just started riding it one day. And like, you know, after Corey chipped his bike, it was like very known that you don't touch my dad's bike, yeah. <laughs> his bikes. Uh, and he just like watched me. So I just like, for, I just went for it. And then I rode it and then... Obviously, the seat was too high because I was a kid. I was like 12 or something, 13. Um, so the seat was too high. So then he came over and he like the second day that I rode, he like put the seat down. He's like, okay, cool. You want to ride? Let's let's see. Dude, this man made me ride that trainer for two months before he took me out on the road. Uh-huh. Just like every day. He wouldn't say anything. He wouldn't be like, yo, get on the bike. It's time to train. He wouldn't say anything. I just like... Went back to the bike and was like, I'm going to ride today, see what he says. And, like, little by little, he, like, got me shoes. He got me, like, all the, like, the right equipment to to really ride. So, he wasn't pushing you. He, he was just observing you. No, he actually tried to give me a bike when I was, like, maybe 10. It was this Bianchi. I'll never forget it. He, like, brought this Bianchi home. It was, like, this uh, Celeste and, like, orange Bianchi frame. And it was my size. And I was, like, riding it around our yard. And we lived next to this alley. Um, So, it was maybe, like, 500 meters long or, like, 400 meters long and I was riding it up and down and up and down I was like oh, this is sick I'm doing it <laughs> yeah. and my, I remember my mom telling me to let CJ my my middle brother ride the bike and then my dad came outside and looked at me and was like you're not serious and he took the bike dude he didn't Whoa. get it for me he like he was like nah you're not he took serious it away from you? he took it away from me he like I never saw it again He's like, you're not serious. So like getting on the trainer and kind of doing it on my own, I think <laughs> was this. You're like 10. He's mad at you that you're not serious about a sport. You got on the bike for the first time. 100%, dude. You're not serious. And I was dude. like, what? First of all, She's you need terrifying. to talk to your wife. She's the one that That's told me to let you. pretty this. hardcore. Yeah. So then when I started riding the trainer, he was like, all right, cool. And like he started giving me like slowly but surely giving me stuff. And then he's like, all right, you're ready to ride. And he, t- he swears he didn't, but I would not forget this. He took me on a ride. It was like 70 miles. Mm. And like I was on PCH and I was like cramping and shit. And I was like, bro, he didn't tell me to eat. He didn't tell me to drink. He didn't t- give me any information. He was just like, just <laughs> handle it, son. <laughs> so we got like. Do you like- think that was by design? 
Yeah, I think he was trying to figure out like, I don't know if he was trying to figure out if I really wanted to do it or if like how tough I was, but it was definitely like a, like either you're going to sink or swim because he understood how brutal cycling was. Yeah. He grew up in, you know, the old school of cycling where like, you know, I think he said his first, the first bike he got, he weld, he welded the bottom bracket in oh, wow. or he got someone uh-huh. to weld the bottom bracket in. So he was like, it's not a game. It's not, it, especially for him, he had like these brutal kind of experiences with the sport. And like, that's was cool. Mm-hmm. Like that was like what the culture was back then. So like, he was just like, yeah, man, like it you gotta seems, be tough. But it's like in today's age, it would be, the idea would be like, let's make sure he he like has a good experience. So then yeah. he wants to do it more, right? Yeah. He's like trying to flame you out on the yeah. first ride. And I mean, I, I think there's something to be yeah. said about there's not a lot of kids in cycling right now mm. because like it is super hard and either you're going to learn it, either you're going to learn it the easy way or the hard way, basically. And mm-hmm. the easy way would be like, yeah, let's make sure you have a good experience. But like, dude, there's days where you're out and you're bonking and you're 30 miles from home and you got to be able to like man up and ride through that. Uh-huh. You can't be like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to stop and call an Uber. Like you're not, what happens when you're in a race? Yeah. You're not going to do that. You cannot do that. So, yeah, I think that there's something to be said about at the end of the day, you have to be like, I I was always taught if you hit the ground in a race or if you crash, you get up and you finish the race. You figure out what's wrong with your bike. You get back Mm -hmm. in the race if you can. Dude, I see guys all the time right now, which maybe I'm getting old, but I'm super irritated because they'll sit in the middle of the road and I'm like. Get off the goddamn course, man. What do you do? Either get up and get back in the race or get off the course. And dudes will be like just sitting there like, oh, I scratched my elbow. <laughs> and I'm like, we are not. What, what is uh-huh. happening? So it's just a different world. And I like I was lucky enough to get a little bit of the old school and the new school. So I understand mm-hmm. both perspectives. I understand the the marketing and the social media and the influencer aspect of kind of the new school and but I understand you came up before that was but thing, I got right? to yeah. I got to get the best of that old school where it, like there was that like kind of hard like mm. this is nothing's gonna get given to you I didn't get my first new bike until I was a professional right you know what I mean everything I had dude I remember having a bike that was like half campy and half Shimano uh-huh and I was like bro this is the dopest bike ever <laughs> right because it was like I had worked so hard to get those parts. And like now kids are just like expecting a Where's my fully durace yeah. tarmac. And I'm like, psych, yeah, like relax, dude. It's not about the, it's not about your equipment. You need to, not only do you need to earn that, like if, if you think in your head that the only reason that these guys are winning is because they're on the best equipment, like you're sadly mistaken. Mm. But back on the PCH, when you when you flamed out, dad dad just split, right? Like he just kept riding. Yeah, he looked at me and he got mad because I had on boxers under my biking shirt because I was uncomfortable because I was a kid, and I was like these. I didn't understand bike shorts. I didn't and I didn't want to wear them, so I had short uh, boxer shorts under. Uh-huh. And he lifted up my leg because I was cramping. He tried to massage out the cramp, and he was like, "Didn't I tell you not to wear boxers under your shorts?" And I was like, "No, you didn't tell me anything." I was like, yeah, bro, that's that's real uncomfortable. I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not there yet, Dad. And he was like, ah, whatever. He was like, just stay here. And I was like, all right. I don't know what that means, but all right. So I was just sitting on PCH, and he left. He's like, rolled off. And I was like, because <laughs> I guess he was trying to get uh-huh. back to the his group, the group 
because uh, I had been dropped. Um, and he just left. He didn't tell me anything, and I didn't understand because I was, you know, half dead from being from bonking from not eating any calories on this like four hour ride. Um, but my aunt came and picked me up, and I don't know if this was planned, <laughs> right? Or Somebody what. made a phone call. Yeah, I mean but, that uh, goes one of two ways: either like I'm never doing this again, like that exactly. was miserable, or like I'm gonna prove to him that I can yeah. I can man up on. I this. had already had had this. Um, I already had this thing in my head where I was gonna show him anyway because like I remember asking him could I race, and he was like, Nah, he was like, You should do something else. <laughs> uh-huh. He was like, You could do modeling. You could do some other stuff. You could play. He's like, stick to football. You're good at right. football. Stick to football. This mom, mom wasn't down with football. Mom though. was not down with football. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was just like this roller coaster of like, you know, I'm I was gonna prove him wrong, but there was also another thing that kind of sucked me into, which I think that's also missing. There was these two kids that grew up uh, pretty close to me, uh, Alex Garcia and Nico Sinfraca, um, and they were state champion, and I think. Alex wasn't national champion. They were both state champions, but the year that I started racing, Alex won the national title. Mm. But Alex was like, dude, five foot tall and like a hundred pounds. But he was Maybe. like, he grew up in your neighborhood though? Like as a <laughs> no, kid he grew you up in like up? Whittier or something. Uh-huh. They both grew up in like the Whittier area. But like Alex had like, you know, he was a tough kid. Like he didn't have the easiest upbringing either. He was a Mexican kid. Uh, and he was so good and he was so small. And I was like, there's no way in hell. I, I, this is like after playing football, after playing basketball. I was like, there's no way in hell this little ass kid is about to be beating me in anything. Uh-huh. So like having, and this kid is a kid that goes on to be the national champion. So uh-huh. like having that level mm-hmm. of injury, so like that's the guy I picked a fight with. Right, little did you know. <laughs> little did yeah, I like know. You, you hitched your you know, train up to a guy exactly. who was going places. Exactly. I mean, it wasn't long before you're winning races. I mean, by, so you're like 13 at this point, but yeah. by 17, you're on Trek Livestrong. 17, I went to rock racing. Oh, rock racing so first, like, right. I signed my yeah, first yeah, pro yeah. contract. So from 13 to, or I guess my first racing year was 14. It was racing age 14, but uh-huh. the way it works is that whatever age you turn in the year that you're racing, that's your racing age. So uh-huh. my birthday is May 26th, but, and I was 13, but because I was turning 14 that year, that was my racing age. So that was my first year of racing, which was 14. And uh, it was very interesting. <laughs> it was very, very interesting. But from 14 to 17, I turned, I turned pro for the first time. Wow. I mean, how long was it before you won your first race? Six months. That's crazy. Yeah, it was awesome because I wow. beat Alex and he was like decked out in his like uh-huh. state champion helmet. And it's like, he had the Oakleys that wrap over your head. Those oh, like yeah. futuristic <laughs> ones. Yeah. Had a skin suit on. Uh-huh. I didn't even know what a skin suit was. He had a skin suit on and he just rode my race, man. And he The race was on a course that I trained on every Tuesday. So I knew like pretty much everything mm-hmm. about the course. Uh, he just raced my race. And that was like a lesson for me because I was like, man, if I go out here and I try to ride this guy's race, he's going to destroy me. But if I like manipulate the situation into being like, oh, I'm tired. I can't pull through. Like when you want to pull through or like I'm going to rest now because like just it's we're going up a hill him. or something. I was just sandbagging yeah. the whole time. <laughs> and then it came down to a sprint. And like, I'm a pretty good sprinter. And like, I have been working with my dad about on on sprinting on that course on uh, Tuesday, Tuesday nights. And I beat him, dude. He didn't talk to me for like a month. 
It was the best, dude, because this is girl. It's always a girl. This is a girl <laughs> named Megan. And she like, they were like kind of a thing, but she was giving me all this attention after that race, dude. And he was like, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> he was like, I'm gonna kill you, uh-huh. dude. And that was it. And it was like at that point, we were just like locked into this rivalry over this girl. Mm. <laughs> and always it was like girl. just bloomed from there. It was like he was again, he went on to win the national championship. Yeah. So from that moment, it was like, all right, my my arch nemesis is the best guy in the country. So like, I'm not going to back down. He's not going to back down. Uh-huh. It just like just made make us, each other better. We just made yeah. each other so much better. Where, when does uh, Rasan enter the picture? Uh. Rasan had always been in my life, honestly. Like I, I've known Rasan forever. Um, he was always around. Him and my dad. The the black community in cycling is pretty small. So he, him and my dad used to go back and forth when Rasan was younger and, and racing in the category threes. Um, so they, I, I always saw him, and it was cool because he didn't look like kind of your typical yeah. hood dude. He was just like this dude that kind of dressed kind of preppy and was like kind of cool. Um, he did. He talked a certain way, and he kind of carried himself a certain way. And it was three other guys. It was this uh, guy Elijah who st- who still rides, uh, and he actually gave me my first pair of carbon shoes. And it was this guy Kenny, um, and those three dudes were like kind of always around. They were like the younger generation of mm. cyclists, uh, and they were on his team, Major Motion, which is the team that I ult- ultimately right. went to when I was a junior, and it's a team that I'm bringing back now because the team ca- has kind of gone away, uh, and it's known for like bringing up some of the best American mm. cyclists. Like Corinne Rivera, who's led the world tour for women, was on that team. Kendall Ryan, who's won stages of Tour California, was on that team. So it's had like this massive pedigree of success. Uh, and and I don't know how it went away, but it went away. So I'm, I'm bringing that back uh, right. for That's next cool. year. That's cool. Um, so yeah, that was, that was early, dude. Yeah. I think that was like from the beginning. You know what I mean? And he's he's been he really he's started been mentoring like a mentor me. to you. you yeah, know, he really started. I mean, he's like mentoring a really me. striking, charismatic dude. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and he was like he's crazy talented. Most people don't know his story. He doesn't tell his story enough. But Rasan's amazing. Rasan won elite nationals when he was like seventeen or something. I didn't know that. Which is like would be like a kid showing up to a race now and beating me, uh-huh. which is not gonna happen. But <laughs> he did that, and it was. That's in, that's insane. He was like the favorite for the world championships on the road. He's mm-hmm. won road, 17, 18 road race nationals solo. You know what I mean? So he has like this incredible background that no one really knows about because he doesn't tell his story as much as he should. Um, but he started mentoring me at like maybe 15 or 16. I remember riding next to him or him coming to get me on his like easy days, taking me out to ride. And he would scream at me if I wasn't like touching handlebars with him. Uh-huh. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, I'm like, what do you want from me, dude? Like, I'm a kid. I don't know what you want me to do. I'm trying. Um, and then we do. But you we, come from football. Yeah, exactly. Mix it up a little. And he, can, he comes from football also. Mm. So it was kind of this like. Which is why it's like Criterium racing specifically yeah. is so perfect for like the the culture that we come up in because Criterium racing is like full contact. Yeah, like we're literally like we're bouncing off each other just to like hold momentum in corners. Um, so he really started kind of spending more time with me, maybe 14, 15, 15 16. Um, and then he used to lead me out. He used to lead me out on Thursday nights at Long Beach this training course. Like people wonder why I'm 
me and my brother are so good at criterium racing, but we've literally done a crit every Thursday, Tuesday and Thursday for maybe 20 years. Wow. You know what I mean? And like that was like just tradition. You get home from school on Thursday, you get some food, you figure out you figure out how much homework you can get done before you take off to Long Beach on Thursday. I think we would leave at like 5.50, get out of school at like 3.30 or 4, and then 5.50 would leave um, every Thursday, every mm. Thursday. So like I, I learned how to do everything on that course. I know how, I learned how to control momentum. I learned how to... Uh, cut corners, figure out, ride corners, use corners to like uh, gain momentum. Um, I learned how to position myself. I learned how to ride breakaways, like all of this stuff. Yeah. So like, we're not so great at criteriums because like we just are naturally talented no, at criteriums. The 10,000 hours. It's a 10,000 hour thing yeah. for like for 20 years yeah. on Thursday wow. at 7.30, we would be doing this hour long criterium. And it was incredible. It was like, Rasan was out there and he used to leave me out. Like the Mesa brothers who were like craziest kids, Sergio Hernandez. Tony Cruz was on US Postal. He used to come right. out every once in a while who was like, Tony Cruz, dude? Like that's mm-hmm. that's crazy. And funny enough, Tony Cruz kind of like mended the relationship between me, Alex, and Nico because he gave us all these US Postal skin suits and they were like, guess we're on teams now. <laughs> <laughs> so on Thursday uh-huh. night, we used to use the, the US Postal skin suits to race together and, and we that used to was race like, as a you, team. That was okay to do that even though you weren't on the team? Yeah, team? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, no, it was. It was because it wasn't a race. It was just a training ride. Right. So like, and we're just these like little mm. snotty-nosed kids that are like pumped at Tony Cruz. Yeah. Which, first of all, I don't know how we fit into his skin suits, <laughs> but he, yeah, he gave us these skin suits and like that kind of created this really cool um, dynamic between us where we were racing every Thursday together. So we we're like, we should probably be on the same teams. Yeah. So then we were on the same teams when we were like 16. Wow. That's sick. And when you joined Rock, Rasan was on Rock. Yeah, Rasan actually didn't came, give me a his choice. His team came after that, right? Yeah, Rasan didn't right? give me yeah. a choice. He was like, dude, you're coming, you're coming to Rock, on Rock. I mean, Rock just seemed like the weirdest Dude, it was incredible. I, yeah, Rock I mean, kind like of- there was a guy who came in with a lot of money, right? It was all blinged out. So he used to, he used to race. Racing was kind of, you know, in his Michael Ball. He used to right, race. That's right. Um, yeah. Cool guy um, in the beginning. <laughs> he um, and actually Michael is still still cool. I still talk to him every once in a while. Um, cool guy in the beginning. Uh, he used to race when he was younger. He got up to like a category three, so nothing like crazy. Uh, but he loved racing, uh, and he had a lot of you know history. I think his family in racing. Um, started a jeans uh, company, like mm, a luxury right. jeans jeans brand that took off and blew up. Um, and then when he got to a certain point in that, uh, he came back to cycling. I guess somebody, I think it was like this guy, Halden Morris. Uh, he was nice. friends with Michael Ball and he was kind of in fashion or photography and they kind of linked up and then they started discussing the idea. And then I think Halden brought Rasan in because Rasan was like on... Uh, Basically, what is education first? Persona uh-huh. was on that mm. team, which is mm. another thing where like right. teams disappear. And now it's education first. At the time, I think it was TIA Craft. Mm. Um, so he brought Rasan in and they built, basically built this California super team. Right. And what I remember about that, just like observing from a distance, it was it was sort of like if Von Dutch was a cycling team. Basically. Like, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, but, but it's almost like in a certain respect, 
there were aspects of it that provided a template for what you would eventually do because they were doing things like it was all rock and roll. Like we're going to break yeah. the rules and we're going to be Every the day. bad boys of cycling and we're going to do this, do things our way. And some of that worked and ultimately it seems like that whole thing flamed out for a bunch of yeah, weird I think, reasons. But I think that there was a lot of positives to be pulled from that. Cycling rejected it super hard because it wasn't your, because my, when I went to sign my contract for rock racing, there was a model in Michael's office and they were having a conversation. I was just like sitting in because his, I was like, yo, my meeting is about to be over with this girl. Uh, just sit right here and we'll, we'll figure it out. And then I remember like seeing this uh, motorcycle helmet in his office and I connected that motorcycle helmet with like Megan Fox had worn that helmet in the Transformer movies. Uh -huh. And I was like, is that what I think it is kind of thing? You know what I mean? So it was like, and you walk through his office and there's like models everywhere. There's clothing everywhere. And like, that's what rock racing was, yeah. right? There was this, there was this understanding that cycling is cooler than people are giving it credit for being. The traveling, the 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 team bus, you're, you're a rock, the bus you're was a rock like, star. That, it was, yeah, there was like a party going on at the it team bus It was crazy. Like, uh, like, it was just really crazy. So I think there was a lot of really good things that came out of that. And that really shaped my perception of cycling, which was a good and a bad thing. Because like when I went over to Livestrong, what a cyclist was to me was a superstar. And I was like, oh yeah, like all cyclists are superstar. Everybody on the team got treated like really well. And mm -hmm. like, we would be going to like these massive parties and stuff. Right, it was rock, very like LA. Like <laughs> yeah, the was... bus, you would see the bus and the team like all over LA, it like on Mulholland, a... like in Mulholland, like in Beverly Hills, like right. in places where you're not expecting to see. Yeah, we had these mass, we had these Escalades. Like yeah, we had yeah, a, I remember that. A <laughs> bunch of Escalades. Yeah. We had a, a Lamborghini, uh, <laughs> team follow car uh -huh. it was it was incredible man so like in my head and i was like, oh, 17. like this is yeah i'm like yeah. this is what it is to be a professional cyclist this is crazy yes uh -huh. this is what i signed up for jesus thank you very much uh -huh. and then when i went to loose drawing it was like this fully european structured team and i was like this is not cycling. right just to like explain to people what that means like it's sort of like you're in the farm system and you get called up and the live the the Trek live strong like U23 team is kind of the ticket to the big leagues right yeah. like if you that was like the team at the time 100%. for the young Still kids is. who were coming up yeah and a huge opportunity for any young cyclist right yeah. but then it just becomes a whole different world that Man. you sour on pretty quickly well the guys the guys that I was on team like Alex Dowsett was my team and he literally yeah, just, he just he won, won stage, a stage he won of, stage 8 yesterday in the <laughs> he Giro he won a stage of the Giro so when Giro. you see that like i know you were like a you, you know you were a domestique for Taylor Finney like these yeah. are like the superstars of the sport like when you see Alex winning a stage of the Giro do you think like Maybe I could have. Maybe I should have stayed. Or are you like I'm good? Nah, I'm good. <laughs> nah, I'm good. Uh -huh. I'm still friends with most of my teammates. I love those guys. They're incredible. Alex was like the the definition of professionalism. Like I think he was probably the most professional guy on the team. Which is like I'm so proud and happy that after all these years, he has a bunch of British time trial national championships, yeah. but he hasn't won a big stage like that yet. He I'm won. Well, he won a stage excited. of the Giro a couple of years ago, right? I think the time trial. Well, it's a time trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a time trial. Yeah. But like it was funny. I was watching his interview, and they were like, "Is this better than winning a time trial?" And he was like, "Way better. Like uh -huh. way better." Mm -hmm. And I, I would agree because the time trial is like 
it's a time trial when you're in a race and you're you know battling against 120, 140 other dudes and you come out on top. Like right. it's just a different vibe because you're in this this moving game where where a time trial is like really structured, right? Yeah. And reality check, like he he's still looking for a team. Like exactly. That, like that's how hard it is that a guy like that who just won a stage of the Giro, yeah, doesn't have a home for next year. Right. Now he will. No, I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah, I'm assuming now he will. But like, he has a lot of stuff going on too. Like, he does like really cool, him and his wife do like really cool like just videos. They have like really good. So, they have a really good social media presence. Mm-hmm. And like, I feel like maybe that's like one of those things where like people in at the top of cycling don't take kindly to that kind of stuff. Like, oh, you have your own identity. You have your own thing. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not really. He's the, he's current British time trial champion. How could he not have a right. job? That doesn't even make sense. And it's job security to have that, right? If you have an audience and a following, then you're bringing value. You would think to that organization. Yeah, you would think. But yeah, Alex was like the epitome of um, of professionalism. And like, there's a couple other guys. Like, I think this guy Jesse Surgeon, he's a New Zealand kid. When I got to that team, I think I was 20 or 21 and he had already had an Olympic, he already had an Olympic silver medal or something, mm. which is crazy. That was that team with like Taylor Finney, uh, Jesse, we had two Ben Kings. One of the right. Ben Kings is currently on um, NTT, I think. And there's a couple other like uh, really, really good guys. So I stepped into that team and I was like, well, I kind of felt in between. There was like the guys that were being prepped for Pro Tour. And then there was the guys that were kind of younger and kind of getting in. And I kind of just fell between there in, mm. in talent and in kind of like understanding of what it was. But there was such a culture shock going from what rock racing was and what my idea of being a professional athlete was to being on this development team. And not only that, we did our team camp with uh, Radio Shack, which was Lance's team uh-huh. at the time. Um, and while we're separate, like being in the same building, the same hotel and kind of seeing how they interact, like having bike fittings at the same time as them, it was kind of like this moment where I was like, whoa, like mm. this doesn't seem that tight. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, this doesn't, this is not what I thought it was. So it was a- it Just was because a, of the, like the energy and the vibe of the whole Just because of the energy and yeah. the vibe of the whole thing. It was so stiff and so boring and no one was- no one felt happy. Lance felt happy because Lance is Lance. But everyone else kind of felt like they were like just there. You know what I mean? Like they were like there because they had to be there rather than like they had the best job in the world. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Which is like to me, like traveling the world and, and racing your bike and getting to go to these amazing coffee shops and fantastic restaurants. Like I thought that was what it was. I thought that was the life of a cyclist and uh-huh. and kind of, it was like this reality check where it wasn't that at all. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It wasn't going to these parties that they were giving away Xboxes at. It wasn't, you know yeah. what I mean? It wasn't, no, you're, you're, it riding, wasn't you're that. riding like cobblestones in the rain. Yeah, it right? wasn't like, dude, Staying we took a like private jet to New York one, one year to do a race, a private jet. I never flew private before. I remember being uh-huh. like, you're not going to ask me to turn my cell phone off. <laughs> This is fantastic. I'm a text, okay, because I can. Um, that's what my experience on rock racing was. And to, then to go to Livestrong, which was the development team, to Radio Shack, which looked like this team that was like so boring and so traditional. I was just like, I You're don't like, know. I'm out. 
I was like, I don't know. You this did for it. Me. How, so how long do you, how long were you on that team? A couple of years. A year. A year. year. I was on a uh-huh. national team one year, which I raced in Europe, and then I was on Little Strong for one year. Uh, and I just when I went over to you, I was in Europe for two months, uh, and and after that two months, I was just pulled the plug. I was over it. I was like, man, like people must have been like, what are you doing? Yeah, I think so. I, I think something that I the the year that I pulled the plug was I pulled the plug in maybe like May. And I think that I should have just gotten through that year in Europe, but I was just so over it, man. It was mm. like not there was no life over there. And you know, be growing up in South Central and kind of understanding that you live this life of of having to be very careful and like not really being able to enjoy being a kid because you're always looking over your shoulder and you're always making sure you're not in the wrong place at the wrong time. When I got over to Europe and I realized that like that life felt worse, you know what I mean? From where I came from, Uh then, then living in the hood, I was like, I'm not going to do this. Like, I'm not going to conform myself to where I feel like I have no voice. I feel like I have no value. Um, I'm not going to, live over here and be treated a certain way to say that I'm pro. I was like, there has yeah. to be another way. And nobody in that situation that you can share that perspective with is going to understand where you're coming from. hundred percent. Like mm-hmm. all the kids, like the, the American kids that were over there with me at the time wanted to be European so bad. You know what I mean? They wanted to be Belgian or Dutch right. so like, bad. Like breaking away. Like hundred percent. Exactly. No, it's ex- <laughs> that's exactly uh-huh. it. And like, I was... I, so it was hard to it was hard to communicate You're like, with where's them. Where's the escalades? Yeah, it was hard to <laughs> communicate with them. It was hard to understand why they were willing to not say anything, or or it was just really hard to understand why it was that the way that it was. Mm. And I was just like, nah, you know what? There has to be another way. Do like, you think if, if you if if there had been no rock racing and you came up? with a more traditional outfit and then went to Europe, that yeah. it would have been different. Like you got, it was almost 100%. like you got spoiled. No, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, I would have probably just like, I would have, uh, maybe I would, wouldn't would be in the sport. Mm. I think I would have probably- well, when you I came actually, back from Europe, you 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 I checked into college, yeah. while, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, so you didn't, you, you were like, did that, at that time, did you think you were totally done or were yeah, you taking a Yeah, I was break? done. It just wasn't, it wasn't fun. I wasn't having fun. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'd rather go to college and like, you live the college life, you know what I mean? Yeah. I wanted to like hang out with girls and go to parties and stuff. Mm-hmm. I didn't wanna I didn't want to spend twenty five hours life. on my bike. Exactly. Yeah. Worrying about my weight every day. Nah, it was over. I got a right. motorcycle apartment and a and a job. <laughs> uh-huh. Went to college, but man. And that was it. But it was, was Corey it. that pulled you back. Yeah, Corey I just started getting uh he was just starting to get pretty good. Um so just talking to him again, I was just, that's the second time he saved me. I was like, hey, and, man. But hold up. But before that, like, are you like, listen, man, here's what you're in for? <laughs> Corey's super stubborn. If you know anything about him. How much him, younger is he than you? Four years. Uh-huh. Uh, he was going to do what he wanted to do anyway. I, I can't I, could, I can't tell Corey anything. I can kind of like steer him and then he has to experience it. So he was just going to go for it anyway. Mm-hmm. He was like, ah, it's fine. I understand. He's kind of a hermit anyway, so he'd probably do well over in Europe because mm-hmm. he's like very to himself anyway. He just, he loves his training. I live for racing. 
I don't really care about training. Like training is something that I have to do. <laughs> Corey like loves his training. He loves looking at his numbers. He loves figuring out how to get better in a way that's very uh, computed or like very uh, structured. And I'm like, I'll put in the hours. I'll do my training to the best of my abilities. And then when we show up to the race, I'll I'll turn it on. Yeah. And like that's always been I'll race in the shape the first like two months of the year. I'm like struggling in races and like trying to find my fitness. Uh, but then come, you know, May, June, I, I, I typically start flying, which is uh-huh. why me and Corey work really well because he's always flying. <laughs> right. Um, and then when I come toward the middle of the year, it's kind of a nice uh, break for him because he kind of carries the team in the beginning. Um, but I couldn't. I couldn't tell him like, "Hey, man, it sucks over there." He's like, "No, it's good. Like, it's fine." Yeah, like so I'm to myself. What did he anyway. do to get you to come back in? Did I you just think wanted you were to just gonna help him. Yeah, or? I just th- thought I was gonna yeah. help him as far as like giving him the tools of like training and like just some of the things that I learned as far as um, how to build fitness, um, how to be the best. Uh, rider on the bike, trying to teach him tactics and, and understanding of the racing and how you can take advantage of uh, being smart rather than being strong. So I just wanted to like basically give him as much yeah. knowledge as I could before I like kind of pieced out. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, and then that year. But when did it click in for you? Like, oh, I, I forgot that I enjoyed this or like this is- When race season came yeah. around. Like race season came around again and I had been focusing so much on road racing uh, and and training the year before. Um, the next year when I got to do some of the bigger crits in the country, that's when it really was like, oh no, like this is actually sick, mm-hmm. right? It was like this this year of like no pressure because I was like, I just joined a, like a local team that was gonna go out to do some of the national stuff, but not a full season. Um, and I just had so much fun. Like yeah. I wasn't even winning anything. I was just like, being competitive and like running into people and like almost crashing. And I was right. like, yeah, this is But there's is something about that, like going into it without any expectations other than like, I'm just here to have fun and 100%. enjoy it and support my brother. 100%. That allowed you to connect with like why it was meaningful to you in the first place. Yeah. And then I had to like go through figuring out that. So I knew I didn't want to be pro in Europe. So then I had to go through this process of figuring out why I didn't want to be pro in America because like it also sucked. And uh-huh. I was like, damn, man, like I'm just trying to like have fun uh-huh. and everyone's ruining the fun of this sport. And I don't understand why I have saw glimpses of uh, success and glimpses of like promise as far as like what the sport could be. Uh, but people just kept like, it, the, like I said, there's this active suppression of like some anyone getting too big or anyone gaining any kind of influence with mm. sponsors so uh, weird. and it's like this this massive control thing so i was riding for teams where i wrote for this team one year where we had uh i think we had like green helmets we had green and blue helmets that the jersey was like maroon and gunmetal uh-huh. and then we had like yellow shoes and then like a white and yellow bike <laughs> and i was like it's a clown outfit. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is a clown outfit. Out. I can't wear this. I was like, dude, a di- when you put on your uniform, when you're playing football or basketball, and you put on your uniform, there's a point of pride of wearing that uniform. You're like, yes, this is business time. You train in whatever. But when you put your race jersey on, it's like time for business. You're proud of it. And you're going out to, you're going into battle mm-hmm. and you have your like armor on. Cycling isn't like that, man, or has it been like that traditionally? You put on this jersey full of sponsors, and you're like, 
nothing matches. <laughs> yeah, that is weird. But then there also are all these weird, like unwritten rules about like sock height and like, you know, the, whether the, the sunglasses go, you know, over, over your strap or, like, or yeah, under your strap, strap. like yeah. all this kind of bullshit that, yeah. you know, for people that are getting into cycling, you know, they just, they get, they get intimidated or ridiculed. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know. they, yeah. Cause people don't know how to like express certain yeah. things. If it's cool to wear your glasses over your helmet strap, then relay that information in a way uh-huh. that's positive. Right. Relay that information in the way that's that's like, hey, man, let me help you out. But like instead, it's kind of like, oh, look at this. Right. Look at this idiot or look at this Fred or look at this whatever. It's like looking for every moment to kind of like down, like push someone down Uh rather than kind of helping someone because you have this shared and common interest. So it is ridiculous. Like sock high. Like. Who cares, man? Like, get out it's of here. It's a big deal, though. It, it, People it, get all caught up in that. For but there what is reason? like, listen, when you're like, look, you're putting on, you know, when you're putting on your armaments, you know, to go into battle, like, yeah. and the pride that comes with that, you know, for for even the weekend warrior cyclist, there's a little bit of that too. I like, mean, there should you know, be. I think yeah. now more than ever too, especially with like how Rafa kind of came on the scene yeah, and like I mean, made it cool really, to like, know, done a lot oh, for you that. need to like, you got to care about kind of what you. Look right. like and how you Except feel. Except that shit's so crazy expensive. Dude, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, once you buy something like that, and you ha- you have it for a long time, yeah. and if you're like, that's why I love how simplistic like a lot of their designs are because they're they're classic. They're not going to go. They're not going to go style out of style. So exactly season. right. Where I'm if like you buy a duck kit, man. yeah, <laughs> or like if you buy a jersey with a ton of sponsors on it, not only could those sponsors change from that team, but like, what if you don't want to rock those mm. sponsorships anymore? What if yeah. something comes out with that that the company that you don't agree with anymore? It's like you're not going to want to wear that, and so that now you spent like a hundred dollars in this jersey that you don't wear anymore versus like the 150 you spent in a Rafa jersey, but you can always mm-hmm. wear it. It's always, it like basically becomes an asset. Yeah, uh, there's there's the high quality of it and there's the aesthetic of it, but also they di- they worked very hard to create culture around it. Like their 100%. retail stores are an experience. You go in there and you get a sense for the flavor of the lifestyle. And it's, and it's it's a lot about lifestyle and community. And like, that's what they do that's like incredible, man. Like for me, um, being able to go into a Rafa store and kind of just chat it up with like a bunch of like their regular customers is like, that's so dope. Mm. And the fact that you have something like that where you can have a coffee. Like when I lived in LA, I would always end a lot of my rides at Rafa and get like a coffee. And like, they used to have like avocado toast. And mm. I was like, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to just sit there for like maybe an hour and just, you know, people are constantly coming in and out of that. That's so important for community where people have this kind of hub mm. where they you never know who you're going to stumble upon when you walk in there. Like TJ Van Garden was the white jersey in the yeah. Tour de France. He, he's been in there before. Taylor Finney's been in there before. The national champion, uh, Alex uh, House, House yeah. has been in there. Like, that's crazy. Imagine being able to go to a basketball court where they give away or where they sell Gatorades, let's say, uh-huh. and LeBron just happens to be on a court one day. You're like, anybody else? Yeah. <laughs> Is anybody else looking at LeBron James yeah. right now? I mean, that's the cool thing about cycling and multi-sport in general. Like, I just know, you know, training in the Santa Monica Mountains, you know, I live like, you know, right awesome. in the middle of all of that. And you can be out, especially in the winter months and- 
you'll see these European teams Dude, out Garrett on training Thomas, camps and they're all staying in the area. Who's won the Tour de France. Yeah, it's like, I've seen George Hincapie ride his bike past my house. That's, you know, <laughs> like, what? That's you know? crazy. Or Mark Cavendish or, you know, these people yeah, like, Mark. you know, it's, 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 it's wild that that's the case and they're accessible and you see them on television racing the Tour de France, but they're just dudes. They're, and, and that's like the best part about cycling is that like, that's definitely a part of um, why it's so cool is that. Another thing is not only that is like, there's so many different types of people. For me, coming from South Central, getting into cycling and being introduced to like all of these people from different backgrounds and, and, oh. and professional uh, like kind of uh, industries it opened my mind up to what was possible. Mm. And like, I think for me getting more kids of color into the sport where they can just have that understanding and, and opening of perspective and like having their minds kind of like, you know, you are more than what the statistics say you are. You know, I grew up in, in a place where we didn't have the best education system. We didn't have a, like a lot of inspiration to be more than, you know, what you saw people being successful in the hood doing, which was like drug dealing or whatever, or hustling or whatever. So to get into a, to get into this sport where there's doctors, there's lawyers, there's people that do things like that you never even thought were jobs, like, you know, like filmmaking and set design and all this other stuff to that own businesses and to be able to have access to just those conversations mm. is incredible. It like completely changed like, what I wanted out of life because no longer was I like, Oh man, my life is pretty limited. Like what I'm going to do, like become a teacher or become like a, like the job, the job field when you're growing up in <laughs> LAUSD, uh, it feels very limiting and yeah. getting into a space where people do all kinds of things kind of changed everything for me. And I think that even just that, putting that in front of some kids, man, that could like be the difference between, you know them ending up in jail or them ending up with a with a marketing career and working at a brand like Specialized yeah. and like I think that's that's extremely important outside everybody's not going to be a bike racer everyone's not going to get it but that doesn't mean that the industry of cycling isn't rich in opportunity 100% but they have to be able to see somebody that they can relate to and right. identify with. Right, right. someone like, has to make it okay. <laughs> you know, you're, you can be, you know, Rasan for, you know, the, the, the way in which Rasan mentored you and you mm -hmm. now have the ability to do that for, you know, all of these young people because cycling, you know, it's like golf, it's so inaccessible. And it's yeah. like, these bikes are freaking expensive. So you're gonna take yeah. these kids to the Rafa store. I mean, it's like, you might as well take them to Rodeo Drive or something yeah, like that. Yeah, but at the same, so I've been trying to attack this issue with the the understanding of like, we're right now in a transition period where we're going from rim brake bikes to disc brake bikes. And rim brake stuff almost has no value now. So like that entry point is like way less now. And that's what was so cool about the fixie scene is that somebody will give you a fixed gear bike. Mm -hmm. You can get a fixed gear bike for a couple hundred bucks. That's a pair of Jordans, right? Like if you want to do it, if someone that you like is doing it, you'll figure out a way to like obtain that, right? So you start, when the fixie scene got massive, you know, it was cool for me to kind of step into that world um, and really um, kind of be in front of those kids because I was like, I would be way, obviously way better than them. And they'd be like, dude, like, how are you so right. good? And they'd be like, oh, I'm so good because I ride road. 
now there are a lot of bikes that you can get, like the LA, and there's a lot of uh, aluminum bikes that you can get that are not free, but like definitely like inexpensive. And if you can buy a secondhand dude, you could probably, I'm sure you can find a, a, a aluminum bike out there for like a couple uh -huh. hundred bucks. Well, and that's that's the that's the entry point. Yeah, now. the fixie scene seems like the, the a great like on wrap for this whole uh, thing. Yes. And that was really the kind of the spark that brought you back into the like you, yeah, you went through it. a couple of these team situations and your oh. brother didn't get re-upped with the team and you yeah. were, but it was like then you got into the fixie scene and that kind of changed. Well when I stepped into the, the fixie scene, there was now there was purpose. Right. It was more than like, oh, I gotta race and I gotta get results and I gotta try to win nationals. Now it was like man, like I could like help a bunch of people kind of discover this like really cool sport and like travel outside of their city and travel outside of their state and kind of open their mind to something else, um, something different. So it just became like more fulfilling that when I would show up to Fixie events, like I would see people that I like went to school with. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I went to school with someone that reminds me of this guy or like, the culture within the Fixie scene was felt just felt more authentic and more real and more down to earth and like less judgmental. And it was just everything I wanted out of cycling. Like I wanted the travel and the racing and and the winning and all that stuff. But I also wanted to kind of have that culture and have those conversations and like have that comfortable home environment. So I really wanted to like merge them together. And I was like, how how can I do that? And that's where like everything kind of was rekindled for me. And I was like, okay, now I have purpose. Mm. Now I can take everything that I've learned from cycling, good and bad, and I can like maybe help some people have an understanding of how they can use this to their benefit or just take something from the sport like I had taken from the sport. And that could yeah. be traveling the country, that could be meeting certain people, that could be um, a different perspective, or that could be going trying to go pro. Yeah. So I just wanted to share all of that. And race results are only one small piece of that whole thing. Exactly. You know? I think a lot of people um, get caught up in one or the other. Like, yeah, we do a lot of marketing and like social media is important, but like winning is also important. Training is also important. Giving back is also the winning important. is really, the winning is important only for the purpose of, you know, creating aspiration for exactly. the people that you're trying to help. And exactly. Serve. Yeah, exactly. So when I when I first um, started winning races or my perspective on winning, it was always that it came with a responsibility. And maybe I think that a lot of that came from Rasan because he gave back to me a lot and he spent a lot of time with me that he didn't have to spend. So my mind was, you know, when I start winning and when I get this massive platform and when I'm good enough to influence other people, it's my job to do the best that I can to give back to, to someone that like I was giving back to basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then telescoping out and like looking at the world of cycling from 10,000 feet, like <laughs> there's a lot of work to be done, man. There's one dude, one black dude <laughs> at the Tour de France, right? That French yeah. guy. Yeah, uh, Kevin Reza. Yeah. Yeah, Gregory Bouget is a, a French track sprinter. There's a couple of uh, African riders. It's like um, five guys on the yeah, world Yeah, there's the kid, yeah, kid uh, named Nicholas that rides for NTT. That's really uh -huh. good. There's a couple of like, incredible guys but again you if you if you see it from my perspective th they're not really given the green light to like go win something you know what i mean like um and daniel i can't pronounce his last name but daniel was a, a kid that 
uh, raced for um, what, what is the NTT uh, squad now. He was in a polka dot jersey at the Tour de France. Uh, and he know. doesn't have a pro mm. contract anymore because I'm assuming that he asked for uh, a bigger contract, right? Because he had worn the polka dot jersey at the Tour de France, which is a massive deal. Uh, and they were probably like, nah. Wow. Nah, you you take what we give you. Like we're we're granting you, mm. we're giving you the opportunity to like get into that jersey. That was that was us. That was that wasn't mm. you. Um, so he doesn't have a pro tour team now. Yeah, and the organization just really you know stumbling over itself to appropriately deal with Black Lives Matter in yeah. any kind of reasonable, responsible way. And they can't because they just aren't on. They just don't yeah. believe in it. They they it's it's they're disconnected from it and they don't. It's not their problem. And like that's how they handle it. Like it's not our problem. And we it don't seems have that like problem Kevin here. did only a little, like only what he could do, which was very little in the construct right. of like being on this team and right. what he's up against. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's so. How um, do you how, like? How do you like beyond like what you're doing with Legion? Like, how does that problem get solved? For me, I, I don't. I, I have no intentions on 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 trying to convince anyone of anything. Uh, I spent like a lot of my career waiting for people to do the right thing and try to like basically show people like have these conversations where I'm like, hey man, like these are the reasons why either this is wrong or or something needs to be done. Um, I, I just I'll just build it myself. Yeah. Like I, I don't want to waste any more energy. Um, either they get it or not, and if they get it, then fantastic. But we'll lead by example, and we'll lead by continuing to do good things, uh, rather than like waiting for someone to do the right thing or trying to convince someone to do the right thing. Like European, I'll say this over and over again: European racing is fantastic for Europe, and they can have that. Like I, I love watching it. I, I super support it. But what we're doing here in America, I think with Criterium races is just underutilized. And I think that there's a space where we can build something that's as influential, if mm -hmm. not more influential, as far as like having a diverse kind of landscape and culture. Um, and then from there, we'll just raise the standard and either they keep up with that standard or, or they don't, but it's not, I don't think it's my job and I don't think it's, you know, and I think that they've had a crazy amount of time to address the situation and, and they haven't. So I'm not going to continue to beat a dead horse. Like, yeah. you know, when, it's funny. What I've learned is that when you start to kind of move um, things forward, people all of a sudden understand what was happening. But if you're asking them to do it versus being the example and actually doing it, you get two different results. Yeah. Well, from an from a spectator perspective and like an audience enjoyment, you know, point of view, Criterium races are just superior. So like, what are you gonna, like for these these tours, like you go and sit there all day and watch them ride by for 10 seconds. Like, I don't understand. But that's the thing is that, that they basically, they you know? basically tailgate and that's a part of and their culture. I'm yeah. sure it's so fun. I'm but sure it's But if you're at a Criterium, fun. you're watching, you can see this whole thing unfolding Unfold. and you're seeing these guys go by many times a day. And it's, there's something electric about it. Yeah, you're watching the race mutate. You're, you're feeling the energy of the Peloton. Like, it's just a different world. It's yeah. way more exciting and riveting and kind of like, there's crashes happening, but there's also like you're seeing the teamwork. You're seeing everything happen in a way that like you just it's just harder to understand unless you know everything about cycling. Yeah. Unless you unless you have an under real understanding of cycling, it's hard to watch that 
on TV and then you're watching it for four or five uh-huh. hours. You know what I mean? In America, it's hard to shut down cities to allow a bike race to pass through it. But what you can do is shut down a city block and like barrier it off, make it feel like a, and look like a block party and then watch these dudes ride around that circuit at 30 miles an hour, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's a, it feels like an event and, it, and it's an experience. And that's why I think that criterium racing, mm-hmm. at least here is the future. And they take place in urban areas, yeah, right? Yeah, Where you can downtowns. create visibility for exactly. the kind of kids that you're, you know, trying to entice into this world. And you know, I I do think that that's like the way the way forward. Yeah, it's perfect because we work with a brand. We work with a, a nonprofit outride, which is like allows us to go into schools and kind of just tell the story of like why racing is oh, cool, cool, why criterion racing is cool. But like you know, moving into next year, you know, after hopefully everything with COVID starts to kind of clear up and get better uh at some point we'll be back in the schools at these big events and being able to invite them out so not only do we tell them like why cycling is cool and like what our story is and how anything is possible Mm. they can come out to these races and kind of bang on the boards uh and experience that race and that energy and that vibe um and i think that that has the potential to like change a lot of yeah, and things. you and you being like a strong presence in that in that world and carrying yourself in a certain way where these young people look at you and they're like, I want to be like that. Right. Like, and that's where the aesthetics of the whole thing are super important. You right. know, like the kit is has to be dope. You I, know mean, what I mean, everything. Yeah, like Corey like, shows up to races. Man, I'm surprised he hasn't worn a suit to a race yet. Yeah. Like he shows up to races <laughs> and he's like full flight, like the same way like, like you Lewis see NBA, Hamilton or something. Exactly. The <laughs> same way you see NBA players uh-huh. walking into the, like the arenas or like whatever their fit is. Like that's how he shows up to races. That's how I show up to that's races. Hilarious. And like not only is the kit important, but like how when people see you off the bike, that's also important. Mm-hmm. Like how are you carrying yourself? Like you have to look the part. You have to be professional. You have to like, people have to want to be you in a way, right? And they have to they have to imagine themselves like, yeah, man, I can live that life. That sounds, that looks yeah. dope. And like in cycling, it's like anti-culture. It's like people wear, people carry themselves with like, you know why I'm cool? Because I don't care. And it's like, who, like, mm, dude, who's res- yeah. who respects that? Like, Dress dress nicely, dress appropriate, care, like have some kind of swag because at the end of the day, like that's what's going to, I know for me, that's what's going to get people like me into it, mm-hmm. right? Like if some kid sees me wearing like Birkenstocks and like cargo shorts, they're going to be like, nah, yeah. <laughs> nah. So I don't yeah. know what's wrong with you, sir, but that's not it. And like, that's, you know, it's as crazy as it sounds, that's super important to to getting people inspired and Mm -hmm. and wanting to do it. Mm -hmm. What's the, uh, like when it's all written, the the legacy that you wanna leave behind with Legion and and like your career, like what's the the impact? The Legion was the first step in kind of learning and feeling out what it's gonna take to completely change the sport. And I think by having control of like what teams look like, what what events look like. I think having that control and power will allow for me to um, make sure that cycling turns into this thing that's very cultured. So I hope that what we leave behind as far as a legacy is this space where people from every 
walk of life can come into this space and just feel comfortable and have an opportunity to not only make a living, but maybe become a superstar mm-hmm. and kind of use that and and hopefully create something where they can elevate what we've done and take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I always think about it like this. The, the NBA was nothing 50 years ago. Like the NBA was terrible 50 years ago. Um, why can't you build something within cycling that in 50 years is valuable and you have all of these opportunities for all of these people? Yeah, I love that. Um, what is the the message that you want to leave for the young person who is listening to this thinking- Go do 70 miles, like, no yeah, food. Yeah, don't eat. <laughs> <laughs> Wear your boxer shorts <laughs> under your under your cycling bib. Uh, I think it would be um, cycling is a freeing thing. Even if you don't want to be pro, it's something that could change your life if you give it a chance. And once you start to ride, pay less attention to kind of what you have and more attention to kind of putting your head down and putting it in the work. Like per- persistence is something that has gotten me to where I am. I'm 31 years old now. Um, Being persistent and really believing in something and and doing it wholeheartedly and not being afraid to put in the work. Like once you're doing something that you love doing, you're gonna be okay, you're gonna be fine. Stop worrying so much about, for me, I, I see a lot of kids that are worrying about training like the Europeans or training like a pro when they're like 17 or like riding the best stuff. Like that's not important. What's important is enjoying the journey that you get to go on in in ending up wherever you're going to end up in the sport. And hopefully yeah. you end up either, you know, in a job in the sport or in the as a pro, whatever the case may be, meeting someone that leads to a job opportunity, whatever, enjoy the journey because building those memories is ultimately what's going to shape how you feel and look back at, you know, your life, mm. right? And 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 what that means to you. Like that journey was is what's important. Being proud at the end of the day that you got to whatever travel, whatever the case may be. Focus on the journey. Focus on the moment. Stop worrying so much about what you think success is. Right? What what you think? Um, what you think is cool in the moment? Just focus on the journey. And every day you get to, if you get to ride your bike, enjoy that because yeah. a lot of people don't get to do something as cool as no. ride their bike every day. It's a gift, man. And I would say that other than the conversations that I get to have because of this podcast, the conversations that I've had on the bike with with people are, are some of the most amazing conversations Seriously. I've ever had with anyone because you're out for hours and you really get to know people. And that's where the community comes from, that one-on-one interaction with other people. And then in addition to that, there is no machine that has been created by man to create suffering more than the bike. <laughs> it's, it's hard and to be suffering mad. Is the teacher? You oh, know, like man. that. That is your guru, man. It's, it's and hard to be mad on the bike. Everything you need to know about life <laughs> from suffering on a bicycle. It's incredibly humbling. Yeah, it's inc- and I'm sure you get that in other spaces, but like on the bike, it's incredibly humbling when you're three, four hours into a ride, and you're just like, it's you. You, you meet know. yourself. Yeah, you yeah. meet your, and it's you and you. Um, it's incredible. So yeah, you're dead on with that. Right. 
Thanks, man. It's great yeah, talking to you. Too. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, it's it's really it's beautiful and inspiring what you built. And if there's anything I can do to be of service to your mission, I hope that you will reach out to me. I, I just think it's really great, and I just wish you all the best. I'm excited. Success, I think it's just the beginning, but um, you know, like it's crazy because nothing has been laid out. We're just really learning. We're going to make mistakes, but you know, at the end of the day, we're just trying our best to. Um, create something that is different and, and can change the future for some someone, some kid, yeah. some someone somewhere. Um, if we can, if we can accomplish that, man, it's a job well done. Cool. If you're digging on Justin, what's the best place to connect with you? Instagram? Yeah, probably Instagram. Uh, Just Williams, J U S W I L L I A M Z instead mm-hmm. of S. Um, that's. Everything that we do, all the events kind of get funneled through there. So, yeah. and are you still? You had like a GoFundMe up for the team, right? Is that yeah, still... I gotta close that down. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty much it's done its job. Right. We started off trying to raise fifty thousand dollars. I think we ended up raising like one hundred and twenty thousand uh-huh. dollars, which is fantastic because we get to put that toward um, a couple of surprise things that are happening, but also junior day camps. So we want to make sure that when kids get to you know. It's really important to me to have that relationship with Alex and Nico off of the bike. Um, and I want to make sure that every time a kid meets up with another kid in the sport, it isn't competition. Mm. Like they can like play cornhole together and build those relationships off the bike because ultimately that's kind of what kept me in the sport is having those, that, those friendships young when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. Um, we get to put that toward that. We get to put that to, toward some other events. We get to put that toward our junior team. Um, and like I said, there's a couple of surprise things that we're going to put that money into. So uh, it's it's been kind of incredible to, to get that support from the community and, and understand that, you know, people feel the same way that we feel. Yeah, cool. How's your brother? Yeah, he's all okay. right, miserable. <laughs> <laughs> Making me, trying to make yeah. me miserable. Okay. No, he's good. Um, you know, Corey was going to have a special year this year, man. Mm-hmm. Like it was going to be insane to watch. People have always putting us into boxes. You're you're a criterium racer. You're a sprinter. I think that was the worst thing that I, I've ever been told is that you're a sprinter. I'm not a sprinter. I'm a, I'm, I'm a person that navigates finishes very well. Uh, and the same thing with Corey. Like he's not a sprinter. He's a he's 140 pounds, 45 pounds, and, and you know he could do everything. Um, so they've always I didn't put realize you had like 40 pounds on him. Like 40 yeah, pounds, wow. it's crazy. Um, but he's just capable of so much. And I think he would have like blown people away this year, like mm. in road racing, in criterium racing and, and everything. Um, and like I said, people continuously try to put us in this box. So it would have been like a rude awakening for mm. some people where when he stepped out or he was like left uh, or when he was there at the end of like a hard day or on a climb. So that'll have to wait until next year. But he's 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 hungry, man. So 2021 is breakout year. If you thought if you thought last year was impressive, man, it's yeah. 2021 is gonna be crazy. All right, cool. Well, come back and talk to me again <laughs> yeah, sometime, well. man. Actually, with Knox here, I was like, I'm I'm sitting here thinking, like, I want to hear a podcast between the two of you guys. <laughs> that would be sick. a conversation I'd like to hear. Because it was wild to hear. Yeah. Cycling was my first passion. Yeah, cool. So. Oh, that's awesome. You talk about crash. I mean, then I was doing the math, and I was like, "Oh, the year he bo- was born, I crashed like every race." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you're talking nice. about is, is so crazy. So yeah. I'm stoked that I got to sit in and just like see what the best of the best is doing right now, and just revisit some old memories and That's wish it. well on the journey, man. I like moved to. 
Crenshaw District, just a small part, you know, oh, just to kind sick. of see if he was around the way ride. And so, yeah, yeah, that's sick. Right. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. All right. To be continued. Thanks. Peace. Awesome. Yeah, dope. <laughs> what do you think? I thought that was a very solid podcast. Good one. Next up is a roundtable with Justin and Knox together. I love those guys. I really do want to hear a conversation between the two of them. In the meantime, do me a solid and give Justin a follow on the socials at JustWilliamZ. That's J-U-S William Z on Instagram and Twitter. Let him know how this one landed for you. Also, be sure to pick up my new book, Voicing Change, Shipping Globally. I'll even sign it. Available only at richroll.com slash VC. And if you're looking to dial up your plate, also check out the Plant Power Meal Planner. That's where it's at. Thousands of customized plant-based recipes at your fingertips with access to nutrition coaches seven days a week, all integrated with grocery delivery and all for just $1.90 a week. Visit meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com slash donate. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition of the show was created by Blake Curtis. Graphics by Jessica Miranda. Portraits by Davey Greenberg. Sponsor relationships are managed by DK, David Kahn, and theme music, as always, by Tyler, Trapper, and Hari, my boys. Appreciate the love, you guys. Thanks for taking this journey with me, and I will see you back here soon with another episode. As always, you can count on it. Set your clock to it. Until then, peace, plants, ride your bike, almost stay. <laughs>